Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, where I sit down with amazing humans, and today's amazing human is Julia Cameron. Now, if you are at all familiar with the creative space or coaching around creativity, entrepreneurship, you have probably been at some point recommended to read the book, The Artist's Way, which is, I think it's somewhere in like five to 10 million copies sold. It was a barn burner when it came out in 1992, I think, around creativity, how to use that as a habit in your life and that it was something that you could train. Now, the author of said amazing book is Julia Cameron, and we are with her today with her newest book called The Listening Path, The Creative Art of Attention, and where you place your attention is, I've argued, one of the most valuable things that we have in the world. So where you place your attention, obviously, is super important, given that it is one of the few things that we actually have uh, at birth in our life. Now, The Listening Path, which is right here, um, incredible book. If you're listening and you can't see it, I'm sorry. Um, it is a transformational journey into a deeper, more profound way of listening and creating. It's a cool six-week program, and Julia uh, walks us through it. We cover a little bit of backstory for those of you who don't know or haven't read The Artist's Way. It's not a prerequisite at all, um, which I find really valuable. It's sort of a, a grounding. We start off with what she believes uh, how she, I mean, she was married to Martin Scorsese as an example. And she talks about, oh, Martin, the, just, the storytelling is amazing. But we're grounded in her early work as an artist. And she has come so far, uh, is a legend in the space. Uh, and I can't wait for you to, to tune into this here episode. So I'm going to get out of the way. Julia Cameron is an absolute legend. I know you're going to learn a lot about creativity, how to harness it, channel it, and specifically in today's episode, your attention, which we all know is so critically important. So I'm going to stop talking and introduce uh, the one and only Julia Cameron. Enjoy the show. Hey, this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. And you're like, isn't that the platform that you... Uh, are the founder and CEO of Yes, It's True. I am the founder of Creative Live, and they are the underwriter for the show. But it, it goes beyond that. This is not about a transaction. You know that I believe so deeply in the power of creativity to affect change, to get us unstuck, and to uh, unlock the, the things, the beliefs, the dreams that we have for this one precious life. And there is no better way of doing that than learning from the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, this is where the best teachers in the world teach photography, video, art, design, music, audio, business, and ultimately the ability to make a living and a life in any or all of those disciplines in a way that you want to. And the best way to do that, bar none, is through the creator path, which is the subscription that we have unlocked now at Creative Live. It used to be like a hundred bucks for a class, now for a hundred and change, you can unlock thousands of classes, tens of thousands of hours from the world's top creators. So where do you go to get the best price on that? That is creativelive.com slash creator pass, all one word. Best price is there. I wanted to say thank you in advance. If you already have the pass, cool. Give me a shout out. I will give you a high five on social. And if you don't, now is a great time to pick it up. It 
brings me so much pleasure to have this guest on the show. Please join me in welcoming Tap Your Keyboards, Raise the Roof, uh, Smile Largely, Clap, wherever you are listening or watching to the show right now, because uh, it brings me so much pleasure to welcome Julia Cameron to the show. Julia, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, to say that you are celebrated in the culture that I come from, culture of people who identify as creators and entrepreneurs would be a massive understatement because, of course, you wrote uh, one of the most prolific, important, and critical uh, books, books that helped transform millions and millions of lives. And I think you wrote it back in 1992, if my memory serves me correct, and it's called The Artist's Way. And we're here today to not just talk about The Artist's Way, which I do want to cover, but you've also got a new book out, which I have, I confess, I have read and uh, is every bit the genius that your your last um, book, The Artist's Way. And I know you've written, I think, 39 other books, so this is old hat for you. <laughs> welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Well, you're very welcome. And I, I think... Uh, that this the listening path does follow on the artist's way. So if you've skipped 38 books in between, don't worry. <laughs> well, as someone who has um, adopted many of the things that you suggest in the artist's way, as soon as I cracked, I, I think maybe even page one or two, you're drawing on that book. So it just felt like a perfectly natural uh, continuation in the best way, and it takes us deeper uh, in a an arguably a more a, a quieter, more introspective way than even the artist's way. And uh, I'd like to start uh, our conversation by going a little bit back. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your history, because I just referenced you, you've written forty books, um, but. Give us a little bit of color on your upbringing and how you began to uh, identify as a creative person and started taking steps to share your creativity uh, with others in hopes of their, their pursuing their own. Give us a little backstory. Well, it's, I would say it has to start when I'm 12 years old. I'm in Mrs. Klopsch's class, uh, and there's a boy who's new to the class named Peter Mundy, uh, and I wanted Peter to be my boyfriend, my first serious boyfriend. So I set about wooing him by writing short stories. Well, as it turned out, Peter fell in love with Peggy Conroy, the cheerleader, uh, and years later he said to me, well, you fascinated me, but you terrified me. Uh, and what I found was I didn't um, succeed in winning Peter's heart, but I fell in love with writing. Uh, and I wrote from then on out. Uh, and I went away to college, uh, and I went to Georgetown. Uh, and the um, regime there said, you don't want to be a writer you're going to be a wife. Uh, and this was, um, I was stubborn. And I said, but I do want to be a writer. Uh, and I began writing more poetry. Uh, and I began uh, 
fighting for my right to write. And what year was this? Take us, uh, put us at a point in history. Your comment about they wanted you to be a wife doesn't obviously go unnoticed, and nor does your resistance to that um, old-fashioned idea. But give us a sense of when it, when in history this was for you. What year it are we? It was 1966. I'm 72 years old now. And so, so I was 19, 18 and you're 18 then. In 1966, you started fighting for your right to write. And what I know about fighting for something is that it can come in many forms. And presumably one of those is writing. But were there other things that you did to fight for that right? Or was just writing enough? Well, I, I wrote controversial articles for the school paper. Uh, and uh, we had things like girls had a dress code. Uh, you, you had to wear a skirt. You couldn't sit on the lawn. Uh, and uh, I, I fought for our right to sit on the lawn uh, and for us to wear slacks as well as skirts. Uh, and uh, I have a friend, Gerard Hackett, who has saved these articles from 1966, and I was feisty. <laughs> Does not surprise me, Julia, not surprised one bit. So when you were protesting, part of what I'm trying to understand is, was it marching in the streets, or did you do this with your pen and by putting articles out there in the world. And, I, and I, I ask this question because there are so many people listening or watching right now that they there there is a is a thing in their world they're trying to get through over or around. And my belief is that using your creative um, skills and the attributes that we all have is a fantastic mechanism to actually free you from from uh, those chains. And there's probably lots of other ways, but I'm curious to hear if it was just the pen that you, as a, as the primary method for your resistance, or were there other things that you would give advice for those people who um, are, are feel blocked in their life in the way that you felt blocked back in 1966? It was just the pen. Uh, I, I had a teacher uh, who was wonderful, uh, who encouraged me to write more poetry. Uh, and he published my first poems uh, in a little journal. Uh, and it was greatly encouraging to me to have a receptive audience. So I owe a great debt to Roland Flint. Roland Flint, we're, we're sending our best to Roland Flint, wherever in the universe, the cosmos, Roland Flint may be. Um, so would I be putting words in your mouth if I said, in addition to writing, you were also cultivating a community, people of like mind and interest, and or, or would that be, um, is that inaccurate? And if so, help me understand uh, where I'm wrong. 
Well, I don't think I was cultivating a community. Uh, Georgetown was a, a boys' school, uh, and I was in the first graduating class of women from Georgetown. Uh, and we weren't welcome. Uh, we weren't encouraged. So Roland Flint was a light in the darkness. Uh, and um, I found myself feeling like if I could just please Roland, uh, I would be on the right track. Well, clearly, uh, if he was a willing audience and, you know, helped you uh, keep going, then you found yourself uh, an, an accomplice, even if he didn't know it at the time. Um, so in 1966, you were feisty and does not surprise me a bit, having read a lot of your work. And at what point did you shift gears and think about writing for other artists instead of pursuing only the art in the forms of poetry and, and other ways that you had written in the past? Is, was there a moment in time when you shifted gears and started writing for the creator that's in every person trying to give us courage? And was there, was that a moment in time or was that a process? Did that take, take time to shift gears? Was there an aha moment? How would you I think, think about we, I think we need to jump ahead. Okay, um, great. So uh, 10 years later, uh, I was writing for Rolling Stone magazine uh, and the Washington Post uh, and Washingtonian and the Village Voice. Uh, and I was concerned with being brilliant. I wanted to be the best smarty pants. The most, uh, the most hot ticket writer, uh, and what happened was I was drinking, uh, and I felt that writing and drinking went together like scotch and soda, <laughs> uh, and um, I got to a point where I realized that the drinking was getting in the way of the writing, and so I quit drinking. Uh, and when I quit drinking, I had someone say to me, now you need to let the higher power write through you. Uh, and I said, well, Christ, what if it doesn't want to? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, just try it. So I dedicated my writing to a line from Dylan Thomas the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. Uh, and I thought I can dedicate my cre creativity to that creative energy and I'll try and let it right through me. Uh, and what happened then was that I stopped trying to be brilliant and I started trying to be useful. Uh, and of course what happened was that my writing straightened out, my career straightened out, uh, and um, I, I said to myself, well, if it's a choice between being a teacher and an artist, 
I'm going to be an artist. I don't want to be a teacher. But then I found out that when I unblocked myself as a teacher, I unblocked myself as an artist. So the two went hand in glove. And it sounds to me something like your own career path. Yeah, there is a similarity. And when I felt my, uh, I was compelled to, to almost in near real time, especially with the internet evolving as rapidly as it was at the time, start sharing with others the journey I was on to discover myself as an artist. And while it didn't take the form of teaching, it was more storytelling. I think that was, uh, that, that anchored somewhere in my subconscious and it created a little bit of a, what felt like a virtuous cycle, like a flywheel. The more I shared, the more empowered I felt to take chances as an artist and I could put something else out there and then help others uh, learn from the emotional roller coaster that I had went went through from just you know putting out a, a book or a photographic essay or you know or some of my writing or or some websites or, or products that I was building out on the internet and it was it was very helpful it was very helpful I think I, that's fascinating I've never heard you talk about um, your relation the relationship between teaching and artistry as you just as you just did that's fascinating where did that take you well i i wrote um the artist's way to unblock about 10 people who were my friends uh, and i thought well i'm writing a little teeny manifesto uh, because i felt like artists were mistreated and we needed to stand up for ourselves so I wrote The Artist's Way, uh, and I shared it with my friends, and they shared it with their friends. Uh, and then I was publishing it uh, at a little communist bookstore. Uh, and um, I was working, uh, I should mention here, a man named Mark Bryan, who was my second husband uh, and a great love of my life. Uh, he said to me, it should be a book. It could help a lot of people. And I said to him, Mark, I am the book. <laughs> and he said, no, really, you must write it down. And I thought, that son of a bitch. He's so <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> so I, I started trying to write the book at him. Uh, thinking each week, well, what does he need to know? Uh, and uh, so I dedicated the book to him uh, and said without him it would not exist. Uh, so this is sort of like uh, we talk we talk about the muse, uh, and when we talk about the muse, we usually picture the muse as a feminine force. But in my life, the muse has been men. Uh, starting with Peter Monday at 12 years old, uh, moving on to John Cain at 18 years old, moving on to Martin Scorsese, moving on to Mark Bryan. Uh, and uh, I... 
I wrote from love and from passion. And as you un- uncovered your own passion and used it, as you said earlier, as the the, the fuse pushing up through the, the, the green the green stem of the flower, uh, I think that was the metaphor, um, did, how aware did you feel like you needed to be? Because what we're really getting to with your, your newest book, The Listening Path, is about awareness. And, and so my question is, how aware were you at the time that these figures were your muse? And do you feel like that mattered? Was it important to know that then? Or were you just following the feelings? That's a tricky question. Um, what happened was that I fell in love. Uh, and each time I fell in love, I fell in love with another art form. Uh, and um, so, for example, Martin was my first husband, uh, and from him I inherited a love of movies. Uh, and Mark was my second husband, uh, and from him I inherited a love of teaching. Uh, and I think that I don't, I don't know that the men would have been flattered if I said they were a muse, uh, but they were powerful muses for me. Well, as you said uh, just a few minutes ago, you wanted to jump forward. So I'm going to take... Um, an opportunity to do so because when your second husband talked you into writing the the book that became the artist's way did it have that same effect immediately that you know as when you were early in draft and sharing it with one person and one person would share it with another um, was it right out of the gates an instant success or again this is one of if 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 you are listening to this show right now and you have not purchased a copy of The Artist's Way, or if you haven't heard about it, then my goodness, you have to spend some time with this book. Um, but that doesn't change the nature of my question. I just want to interject that for anyone who's who's new. Um, d- when you wrote it, was it an instant success? And we were talking back in 1992. And um, what was your experience when you put it out in the world? How did you feel? And what was the reception Well, first of all, we published it ourselves, uh, and we started getting letters. I am with the State Department in Switzerland. I hear you have a manuscript. (laughs) So we got letters from odd quarters, uh, and we Xeroxed the book uh, and mailed it off. uh, And we probably did... I want to say a thousand books that way. Uh, and then uh, I, I wanted to publish the book. Uh, and I had a literary agent encouraging me. And then suddenly she threw her, her heels into the ground and said, I can't represent your book. We already represent Natalie Goldberg. 
so I said, well, I don't think Natalie would mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Natalie is, has become a good girlfriend of mine, uh, and she's very generous-spirited. But what happened was Mark, the second husband, was in a bookstore, uh, and the owner said, does Julia have a literary agent? And Mark said, well, she did, but, but she doesn't anymore. Uh, and the bookstore owner said, here, this woman came in and left me her card. Uh, and so Mark came home uh, and said, you must call this woman. She's a New York literary agent. And I said, I can't call her. I'm too discouraged. And he said, I'll call her. <laughs> Uh, and um, so he called her up uh, and she said well every year at Christmas I get a good book and maybe this year it's yours so um, we we sent her off the, the little hand bound communist bookstore manuscript and she called me on New Year's and said I love your book and I think it should go to Jeremy Tarcher. So Tarcher was a creativity press who um, had done things like uh, drawing on the right side of the brain. Uh, and she sent it to Tarcher. Uh, and Tarcher said, I'd love to publish it. But they thought it was going to be a little teeny California book. Uh, because they thought, well, it's maybe a little bit too woo-woo for mainstream. So they published 7,500 uh, and didn't put out any advertising on it. Uh, and what happened was the book caught fire. Uh, and uh, by word of mouth, it spread. Uh, and it wasn't until we had sold a hundred thousand books uh, that it occurred to them, gee, maybe we should push this book a little bit. <laughs> Leave it to the uh, to to the industry. I do that in air quotes to know what to do. Right, uh, you're a hundred thousand books in, and is that a point where your life changed because of that work, or was it more of the same? Well, I was teaching all along, uh, and I. Where were you? Where were you teaching now? Uh, well, the first place I taught was the New York Feminist Art Institute, which I had never heard of, uh, but I was feisty, and they were feisty, uh, and they said your first class meets Thursday, <laughs> <laughs> and so I taught my first class of writers, actors, directors, filmmakers, uh, and I taught them to use morning pages, uh, which had become a practice of my own. Uh, and um, they... They began unblocking. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I should teach them the rest of the tools that I use. So I put together um, a toolkit. 
and I, I taught for about 10 years in my living room uh, and uh, at Columbia College and at Northwestern University. Uh, and they basically, I was teaching uh, as a, the floor sample of my own toolkit, uh, saying, it's unblocked me, it can unblock you, give it a try. There's so in a way you had experimented on yourself for a number of years and developed these tools. Is that a fair characterization? And it was yes. it things that you borrowed from others, or was it all manifested from fits and starts and experiments on your own? I would say a little bit of both. Uh, there's a book uh, called Wishcraft by Barbara Sher, uh, and um, it was an influence on me, uh, and I think um, it's interesting. This year, I read a book called On Becoming a Writer, uh, and in it, it was published in 1934, in it, the author recommends getting up in the morning and writing morning pages, but I didn't know that this book existed. Uh, and so I would say the tools mainly were self-generated uh, rather than, uh, than borrowed from any place particular. Well, I would love to uh, flex my artist way knowledge and share with the audience um, and around uh, the couple of key cornerstones of the artist way that when you're talking about tools, there's all sorts of uh, frameworks and stuff under each of these headings. But ultimately what I took away from the artist way is sort of three main points. Um, one morning pages, two artist dates and three walks. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to make sure we get to your newest book listening path, but as you, look back on these three tools, are they a complete set of what it takes to make a great artist or to, to get more in touch with your creativity? And if so, or if not, how should we think about those three key elements of your work? Well, I would say they are the basic tools uh, and that if you work with those three tools of morning pages, three pages of longhand morning writing that you do while you are still vulnerable uh, before your ego gets involved and says, you can't say that. Uh, so, so you write morning pages. You take an artist date once a week. You go out and do something just playful and festive. Uh, and you take a walk and you integrate the information that you got from the other two tools. Uh, and I had a review recently where it said, Julia's tools are simple and repetitive. Uh, and I think it was intended as an insult. But 
I, I thought I think that's the recipe to greatness right there, right? What is what is what is the greatness if not a, a, a thing done really well as a habit, right? Well, I found myself thinking simple and repetitive tools, that's exactly what I'm aiming for. So when I wrote the listening path, I talked about those three basic tools from the artist's way. Uh, and I should say uh, that when I wrote the artist's way, I I didn't know to put in walks as a basic tool. I got to week 12 of the artist's way, the final week, and I said, oh, yes, P.S. exercise. <laughs> It'll help. Uh, <laughs> but now I've been teaching another 30 years, uh, and so I know to say walk. It is so true. I have... Um... I would like to share just a small personal anecdote here. Um, I have been using morning pages um, on and off for probably 10 years. And there is a very strong correlation to when I am uh, both successful and fulfilled. I may have one or the other, but usually don't have both unless I have morning pages as an active um, as an active part of my day. The second artist dates, uh, that was so helpful for me to really understand, uh, when I was bailing on the things that everybody else had for me to try and understand that I was creative and to, um, sort of clear out some of the things that were blocking in my head and would go, go take in the work of others or, you know, go to museums. And, and that was hugely formative, and walking, I'll share that I was blocked earlier today. I woke up early and did some morning pages and it was, you know, 10 o'clock and I hadn't gotten unstuck and the walk, a short walk, it was 15 minutes. And I came back refreshed and have had just an amazing day until now where we're recording. So to say that your work has impacted me would be a radical understatement. And uh, I want to personally say thank you here in the middle of our show. Uh, and I also know, though, that you sold five million books, so I'm I'm uh, five million of the artist's ways. So I'm I'm not at all alone. And um, I'm wondering now. You mentioned thirty years on, and you look back, you clearly felt something else needed to be said, which is why you wrote the listening path. So tell us why. Tell us what was it and. Uh, what was the the idea that generated this amazing six-week program uh, called The Listening Path? Well, I moved from New York to Santa Fe. And New York, as we know, is loud, hectic, noisy, busy. Uh, and I had lived there for 10 years uh, and done a lot of writing there. Uh, and... Then I thought, uh, I'll do an artist's way tool of things that I love. And I started putting down mountains, clouds, chili, black beans. Uh, and I thought, oh, my heart is in the Southwest. So I moved from New York to Santa Fe, where I knew two people, uh, Natalie Goldberg uh, and... Uh, a woman named Alberta Hanstein who raised championship horses. Uh, and uh, 
I got to Santa Fe, uh, and it was quiet. And I, at first, I missed the sirens. I missed the hubbub of the city life. Uh, but then after a little while, I noticed that I was listening differently. Uh, and I would listen to the call of a raven or the trill of a songbird or the skitter, skitter, skitter of a lizard crossing the path. Uh, and I thought, oh, maybe there's something to this deeper listening. So I began to, to try to listen more deeply, uh, starting out with, uh, I was already doing the three basic tools, the morning pages, the artist dates, and the walks. Uh, and I started consciously to practice them. Uh, and I found myself listening to my environment uh, with a heightened awareness. And that became the first layer of the listening path, to listen to the noises that we habitually tune out, to try instead to tune in and keep a log of pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, uh, and change the unpleasant if I could. The second tool was talking to others. Uh, and I realized uh, that I needed to learn to listen more deeply. Uh, and I started asking people about what made great conversation. Uh, and they said, well, don't interrupt. Uh, and I realized that a lot of times when we're listening, we're waiting to say what we have to say next, and we tune out uh, the partner that we're sharing with, and we cut them off. And I said, don't cut them off. Stick with it. Be patient. And that became the second layer. So then... Uh, the third layer was one of listening to our higher self. And you asked me before about uh, did I use pen to page as a weapon or as a tool? Uh, and I said, yes, I used it as a tool. So you're now doing a layer of could I hear about X? And you're listening to your higher self. Uh, because we lots of times have an idea uh, that an issue that's troubling us uh, and we think, who do I know that I can ask for help? Uh, and we sort of uh, interview people we think might be wiser than ourselves and we don't say to ourselves, maybe I'm wise enough. Maybe I'm wise enough. And the, all three tools, morning pages, artist dates, and walks, are designed to convince you that maybe you are wise enough. So then, I'm going through the whole book here. but uh, This is so lovely. I couldn't have begged you to do it any other way. I'm grateful. Keep going. Well, the next chapter is listening beyond the veil. 
Uh, and this is listening to people who have died and passed on uh, that we miss uh, and that we wish we could still be in contact with. And for me, uh, I had two people, uh, Jane Cecil, an actress, and Alberta Hanstein, a horsewoman. Uh, and I would try to find them in the ethers. And I would say, can I hear from Jane? And I would hear, Julia, I'm right by your side. There's no error in your path. You are well and carefully led. And then I'd say, let me hear from Alberta. And she would talk like a horse show woman. And she would say, Julia, you're a champion. I give you a blue ribbon on this book. So what happened was that I found myself afraid to share with my friends that I was talking to dead people. And I thought they're going to think I'm too woo-woo. But gradually I started sharing with my friends uh, and I found that they took the guidance very seriously uh, and that they believed it was possible uh, to reach beyond the veil. So when I taught recently in London, I was teaching the book, and I thought, now when I get to this chapter, everybody's going to dig their heels in and say, Julia, you're too woo-woo. But what happened was when I got to the chapter of Reaching Beyond the Veil, the class lit up uh, and became very excited and very interested. Uh, and it was clear that they had been just sort of waiting for someone to give them permission to reach beyond the veil. So I gave them permission. And then I said, now you might want to do a chapter on talking to your heroes people that you didn't know, but you admired. So we write to our heroes and we're calling forward attributes of ourselves that we may not have noticed. Uh, I had a, a woman say to me, Julia, my hero was Einstein. Uh, and I called for help from Einstein and today I'm smarter. <laughs> so, so I found that the book spoke to people uh, more clearly than I can speak myself. Uh, and the final tool of it is listening to silence. Uh, and I think uh, many of us are sort of scared of silence. Uh, and uh, we find ourselves balking, uh, and uh, meditation seems formal and formidable uh, and daunting. And so I don't call it meditation. I just call it listening. And I had a friend, Jerry, who said, Julia, I'm terrified of silence. I have my radio, I have my, my internet, I have my television, uh, and you're asking me to turn them all off? And I said, yes. Uh, 
try it for two minutes. And he said, well, could I call you back? And I, I said, okay, try and call me back. And two minutes later, my phone rang and it was Jerry. And he said, I turned off all my devices. It was terrifying. And then I got the most wonderful idea of what my work pattern should be this week. And I said, well, that sounds like inspiration to me. Do you think you'll try it again? And he said, well, yes, maybe. So I think uh, the final chapter of The Listening Path is the yes, maybe chapter. Uh, and um, hopefully uh, people will use all six weeks tools cumulatively. So they'll have a pattern of their own basic toolkit, the three tools, and then the six other layers of listening. Uh, and I think uh, I think they are deeper deeper tools, perhaps, uh, than artist way tools, because wow. I, I'm not sure if you found it that way reading it. Well, I'll share the way that uh, uh, when I. Um, I did find it deeper on a couple of different axes. Um, I have a, I'm a very lucky man because I'm married to an, an incredible human. Her name's Kate and she is, uh, an awareness coach, a, a meditation and mindfulness coach uh -huh. and former school teacher, lifelong producer of films and videos and, and has managed so much of my personal creative career, uh, in a very creative fashion and of itself. And, um, she's incredibly gifted at teaching and, and got me into meditation and mindfulness. And I could not help, but substitute. Um, and this is, you know, um, we all, we, we rarely know what work our, our, our creative endeavors are going to do out in the world. So I guess I'm sharing with you some of the work that your latest book has done on me. And, it, I was reminded how much listening is, it's just, it's awareness for me. It is, if attention is one of the few things that we have in this life, literally what we decide to focus on, then there's a world where your attention is the most important thing in, in our lifetime, whether that's to uh, you know, a walk in the forest to the lizard scattering across the path, as you said, or to another person that you care deeply about, or to, you know, ourselves, all of those are, fa are functions of where our attention is placed. And to me, that felt so, um, there's a, a meta layer here because there are exercises like, you know, go for, go do this work and sit like this and think about, you know, listen to the birds, you know, their, their tactics. But what I love about this book is that it got me so, uh, my attention so placed in what I would consider to be to the, the right places, the places where 
our wells of humanity, our connection, our, um, it's just, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And so between morning page, <clears throat> morning pages and the listening morning pages specifically as an exercise and just this willingness to do this six week program and pay attention to the things that you instruct us to pay attention to, I immediately felt grounded in a way that uh, I hadn't in the past, certainly in the past uh, 10 or 12 months, we've had a pandemic going on and um, it was very grounding to do the work. So uh, that's just how my experience was, but I, I want to say thank you. And uh, I'm curious if, well, feel free to respond to that through rocks or, or, or tell me more, uh, Dr. Julia, but also I'm curious, uh, well, I'll stop there for a second and wonder if you have any comment, um, and then I'll ask a follow-up. Well, I just want to say that the timing of the book is a little bit uncanny. Uh, I wrote the book. I gave it to my publisher, who is a muse for me, uh, another masculine muse, Joel Fotinos, uh, and... Um, he brought the book out, uh, and we couldn't have known about the pandemic when I was writing the book. But as we were publishing the book, we began to realize that maybe it was speaking to a deep need that we had for a way to creatively channel are often chaotic creative energies. So the path uh, was straightforward. Uh, and um, I think that's all I want to say about that. Uh, that resonates deeply with me. And you couldn't have picked a better time. And I think the, the quiet, whether you're scared like your friend or you cherish it, um, it has a way of affecting us, silence uh, our own thoughts. You know, I, I, I think that the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. And, you know, that, that, that part in the book where you're talking about listening to, to your higher self also really resonated. The question that I wanted to ask from earlier is, you know, I heard you in a sense, judging the, the work you've said a couple of times, woo woo, but in particular that when you were listening beyond the veil that you might have had students, you know, question that as a, either a tactic or a concept. Um, and I'm wondering with someone who has written about creativity so much and had such an incredible creative career on your own, what role, if any, does judgment still play in your life and work? Well, we're, we're talking here about Nigel. Uh, Nigel is a critic uh, that's been with me since I was young. Uh, and I, it's a critical voice that says that what I'm doing isn't good enough, uh, isn't deep enough, isn't daring enough. Uh, and uh, 
Nigel, I picture Nigel as a British interior decorator uh, <laughs> with impossibly high standards uh, so that nothing I do can ever match Nigel's expectations. Uh, and I think, um, I think people will say to me, Julia, how can I get rid of my critic? Uh, and I feel like the answer is, I don't think we can. We can miniaturize our critics. We can make uh, Nigel is a cartoon character now. So when he pipes up negatively, I just say, Nigel, thank you for sharing. But when I um, wrote this book, uh, Nigel was full of opinions. Uh, and uh, I turned the book in, uh, and I thought, oh, they'll reject it. Because I had been listening to Nigel's poisonous words. Uh, and when they came back to me and said we would love to publish this book, I thought, do you know what you're doing? Uh, and I had to trust uh, that there was a higher path uh, that knew what it was doing. Uh, and um, so I, I can't sh share that I'm beyond fear because I'm not beyond fear. But I've learned to sort of s step around the skirt of fear. Uh, and... Uh, keep working are there any other uh thoughts or tactics advice on managing nigel other than stepping around him i think humor is important i had i wrote a mystery novel called the dark room and it had 19 good reviews and the 20th review was very negative, uh, and it was in the New York Times. Uh, and I, I felt like I should go outside of my house in New York wearing sackcloth and ashes. I was very embarrassed and ashamed by the title, by, by the um, review. And then I thought, I need my sense of humor back. I'm being too dark. I'm taking this too seriously. So I wrote a little poem that said, this little poem goes out to Bill Kent. He was the reviewer who must feel awful the way that he spent his time reviewing Carl Jung instead of on the book I'd done. Uh, and I found, uh, that writing, I call it rhymed inventory, writing rhymes when things are painful uh, is a wonderful way to get past the wound. This little poem goes out to Mary, whose value system is very scary.
Is there more? <laughs> well, there's lots more. Oh, I think that's incredible. What a gift you've just given us. Are there any other tactics specifically for dealing with maybe uh, not the actual critic, say the critic that is in the New York Times? You mentioned Nigel. Is humor the only or the primary tool that you use for... uh, for shutting down Nigel? Are there others? There's a tool that I think is important. Uh, And I didn't know how important it was when I wrote it. Uh, And it's in the back of the artist's way toward, toward the end of the book. And it's a tool called Blasting Through Blocks. Uh, And it's a tool to undertake when you're procrastinating Uh, when your fear has got you landlocked, uh, when your critic is loud. And what it is, is you write your resentments, your angers, and your fears connected to the project at hand. Then you read it to what I would call a believing mirror. A believing mirror is somebody it sounds like your wife is a wonderful believing mirror Uh, she is i want to share something just in real time here i had the book open to a dog-eared page and i had my finger directly on believing mirrors believing mirrors and oops there it is if you can see it's this way believing mirrors it was like literally when you said it, I just got chills. I was looking at that phrase and I said, I wonder, this feels very much like believing mirrors. So sorry, I keep going. I just like that was divinity in action right there. So you read it to a believing mirror. Believing mirror is somebody who reflects back to you your strength, your courage, your positivity, your possibility. Uh, and uh, they don't have a need to fix you. They just have a need to listen. Yeah. Everyone needs a believing mirror. I'm guessing right now there are people who are tracing in their mind some believing mirrors in their lives. Any advice for people who are uh, blocked and believe that they don't have that? Or would you say that there's not looking deep enough? Or um, how would... How would you answer someone who raised that question? I would say you need to audition your friends uh, and uh, keep a little tablet uh, and say, this person is a believing mirror. This person is a doubting mirror. Uh, and uh, I, I want to put a plug in here for Harry Potter Uh, And uh, a a lot of the archetypes in Harry Potter uh, resonated for me creatively. So I think uh, when we are looking for a believing mirror, we sometimes need to go back to humor Humor is so powerful, and I, uh, 
one of my 2021 commitments to myself is to, I mean, I used to, I feel like I laughed out loud so many times a day and often tried to, to bring humor. And at some point, uh, I just have started taking myself too seriously. So part of my 2021 is to lighten up a little bit. Um, and I'm wondering since I'm, that is a, uh, um, ambition of mine for 2021, can I take any personal advice here? Well, uh, this is where, um, artist dates are so important. Uh, I, I find when I assign morning pages, I say, I have a tool. It's a nightmare. <laughs> you have to wake up 45 minutes early and write introspectively. Uh, and people will say, oh, work on our creativity. Oh, I get it. And they'll dive into morning pages. But then if I say, now I have a second tool for you. Uh, and I want you to take yourself out once a week and do something festive. And in other words, I want you to play. And immediately the arms are crossed, the skepticism emerges, uh, and people say, play. I don't see what play has to do with working on our creativity. Uh, and uh, what I have found is that we have an expression, the play of ideas. And we don't realize that the play of ideas is actually a prescription. Play, and you will have ideas. So during pan pandemic, uh, you can't go out of the house, perhaps, for an artist date. But you can look around your house and say, what can I do that's festive here at home? Uh, and it might be, oh, take a bubble bath. <laughs> Oh, paint your fingernails and toenails scarlet. Oh, listen to a podcast that we don't usually listen to. Oh, listen to some drum music and dance a little bit. Uh, and um, what it is is you want to do something that would enchant an eight-year-old. And maybe you have children in your life uh, and you have, I have an eight-year-old granddaughter who has read all of the Harry Potter books. Wow. So. Be enchanted like an eight-year-old. Let us, I will take that as a prescription. Um, again, I have to say thank you so much for writing the listening path i'm holding up an advanced copy here thank you for getting me one so grateful to have you on the show and the last question is you you have with the artist way and with the listening path you've given us a a, a roadmap and a timeline do these chapters like weeks and that was a very useful format I found in both cases. And I'm wondering for folks who are, who want to get ahead and want to read the whole thing in a sitting who, you know, they're, um, overachievers and, and, uh, 
some of you listening may know a few. <laughs> um, was the was the uh, was the intent to keep this experience slow? Is that one of the prescriptions? And if so, do you give advice openly to people who want to sit down and read your book cover to cover? I find I'm finding that people tend to read this book in a gulp. Uh, and then I need to say to them, okay, now circle back to the beginning and go apace. Uh, but uh, I have found uh, that more so than the artist's way, this, this book tends to be devoured. Uh, and I think... Uh, that's because we have such a huge appetite uh, for creative change. Uh, consider me spoken to because you 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 just pegged me. Um, I'm at a moment right now. Where there's I got so many different things going on in the best way, and I feel uh, a little bit stuck in the rut that was 2020 and. It couldn't have come in a better time. Uh, I want to say thank you for helping break me out and break some old habits and start some new ones where to pay attention and spend my listening. Um, so grateful to have you on the show. And uh, I just I want to give a very overt plug for both of the books that we have spent the majority of the time here discussing The Artist's Way and The Listening Path, Listening Path being the newest from our guest today, Julia Cameron. It has been such a treat to speak to someone who has had so much influence on so many and myself uh, included. So grateful to have you on the show. Um, our community, I know because I've, I've mentioned you, I've, I've written about you in my own book, Creative Calling. Uh, Morning Pages is scattered throughout there and, uh, and the community always responds. If I'm ever you know, lecturing or, or uh, talking about the creativity, the science and the art of creativity. It can't get through a, a, a discussion, a conversation, a question without your name coming up. So thank you so much for having such a powerful imprint on, uh, on the creative community worldwide. So grateful for your work and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. We're looking forward to having you back for your next book. I'm not quite sure when that is, but um, really, really grateful. And thank you so much for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, signing out from uh, an amazing conversation today with Julia Cameron. Again, The Listening Path is her latest. Please check it out. Julia, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, I'd like to read a poem if we have time. Uh, we, we shall. We will make time. Uh, a lot of times we say that... Uh, Creativity springs from pain, but I have found that creativity springs from deep wells of joy. This is called Jerusalem is Walking in This World. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the look that comes from strangers. I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. 
Yes, hisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer as glass. Surely this will pass. The wind like kisses. The music in the soup. The group of trees laughing as I say their names. It is all Hosanna. It is all prayer. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Thank you. So beautiful. And thank you again so much for being on the show. What an amazing sign off. Um, Grateful uh, to no end. Thanks so much. And congratulations on another stunning work of genius. And uh, I hope our paths cross in person at some point because I, I feel like I want to continue to shower you with praise as you've impacted the lives of so many. Uh, congrats on your success, and, um, and thank you again for being on the show. You're very welcome. All right, that is a wrap. But before you go, hey, I wanted to say thank you so much. And I do note that many of you have asked how you can help me out there in the world, and I have a great answer for that, and it is sharing this show. Um, my goal is I create this content with a, with a talented, hardworking crew over here at Creative Live. And our goal is to get this information out there into the world, help the, the greatest creators and, and entrepreneurs of our time get their ideas spread far and wide. So you sharing your takeaways or just links to the show, any of the podcast platforms or whatever, means the world to me. Thing two, how you can help if you care is to leave a review at your preferred podcast platform. That also helps surface uh, this show, the guests, uh, in in search results on each of the platforms, and it means a lot. So, thank you so much. Really, really grateful, and I'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Hopefully, soon, maybe next, maybe right after this. Maybe you're gonna listen. Anyway, whenever you get around to it, I'm here. Thank you. <laughs>